All right. Well, we are continuing uh, in the study of the book of Esther, and we're coming up to chapter 9. And just a, a brief recap, uh, we've seen that the, the people of Israel were on the brink of destruction uh, and were powerless to do anything about it. It's a story, Esther is a story about how God works providentially. Uh, and, and before we've seen in John, God also uh, can and does act supernaturally. So he can, he can split waters, he can turn water to wine, he can heal paralytics, he can do that. But oftentimes God works through ordinary means, through, uh, through, through day-to-day circumstances and decisions that we all make. He is uh, behind the scenes working in them. And, and Esther is a great book for seeing, uh, seeing that way in which God works. And so uh, it's a story about how God is, is ultimately keeping his promises uh, to his people Israel. As Israel is threatened... All the Jewish people in the entire empire of Persia, which basically meant the entire world, uh, were being threatened uh, with extinction, threatened with annihilation. And if it's the, the most powerful government with the most powerful army who the king gives a decree that this is going to be the case, uh, it seems all but inevitable that the, the Jewish people's days are numbered, but what we find out through this story is through uh, incredible coincidences and through perfect timing that that somehow, some way, the tables are able to be turned, and here we come to the place where we see uh, the, the 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 full plan of what was going on come to fruition uh, as the Jews actually overcome their enemies, and so that's where we pick up in chapter nine. I'm going to read uh, from. Uh, Esther chapter 9 from the New Living Translation. Please stand for the reading of the word. So on March 7, the two decrees of the king were put into effect. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them. But no one could make a stand against them, for everyone was afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the highest of officers, the governors, and the royal officials helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai. For Mordecai had been promoted in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces as he became more and more powerful. So the Jews went ahead on the appointed day and struck down their enemies with the sword. They killed and annihilated their enemies and did as they pleased with those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa itself, the Jews killed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Erasai, Eridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not take any plunder. That very day when the king was informed of the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa, he called for Queen Esther. He said, 
The Jews have killed 500 men in the fortress of Susa alone, as well as Haman's ten sons. If they have done that there, what has happened in the rest of the provinces? But now, what more do you want? It will be granted to you. Tell me, and I will do it. Esther responded, If it please the king, give the Jews in Susa permission to do again tomorrow as they have done today, and let the bodies of Haman's ten sons be impaled on a pole. So the king agreed, and the decree was announced in Susa, and they impaled the bodies of Haman, uh, Haman's ten sons. Then the Jews at Susa gathered together on March 8th and killed eight, 300 more men, and again they took no plunder. Meanwhile, the other Jews throughout the king's provinces had gathered together to defend their lives. They gained relief from all their enemies, killing 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not take any plunder. This was done throughout the provinces on March 7th, and on March 8th they rested, celebrating their victory with a day of feasting and gladness. The Jews at Susa killed their enemies on March 7 and again on March 8, then rested on March 9, making that their day of fasting and gladness. So to this day, rural Jews living in remote villages celebrate an annual festival and holiday on the appointed day in late winter when they rejoice and send gifts of food to each other. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to pray for our time. Father, I ask that you would uh, help us uh, to understand your word. Father, that you would uh, illuminate it in our minds, and our hearts. Lord, that we would uh, get to know you uh, even better through your work, through what's been recorded about what you've done. And so, Lord, uh, meet us uh, this morning as we sit in your presence under your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Water here. So last weekend, our nation celebrated uh, the 4th of July. Uh, It's a celebration of signing what is known as the Declaration of Independence. Now, Now, the reason why we celebrate that day is because Uh, there was a corresponding victory, right? Um, What good would the Declaration of Independence be if we were still under British rule? Um, How many of you know that victory is not merely declared, it's won? Here's here's an experiment. Uh, For for you kids in the room, uh, you can try this if your parents allow you. Uh, But the next time you play a game, okay, uh, with someone else, like a game of competition, before the game even starts, just declare victory, okay? Just say, victory, and raise your hands in victory, okay? And, and, then, and then see how the other person responds, okay? And most people will probably not accept your declaration of victory. Why is that? Because uh, you can't assume victory. You can't declare victory. Victory actually has to be won, because there's an opposition, there's an opposing person who also wants to claim victory. So victory is not merely declared, it's won. And if it's won, it's sweet, but because it's won, it's also costly. 
What is the cost of victory? What does that look like in the book of Esther? How is that cost paid? And how can we find ourselves on the side of victory and not on the side of defeat? The title of the message this morning is A Victory Won by Grace. A Victory Won by Grace by grace. And, and there's three truths, three critical truths about victory that I want to outline. The first is that victory is costly. Victory is costly. The second is that victory is grace, ultimately. And, and the third is that victory is Christ. Victory is costly. Now, why doesn't the Persian king merely declare that the Jews are victorious? The answer is pretty straightforward, uh, because there is opposition. Now, now what's happening, there's there's two decrees that have been put in place. The first decree gives uh, people throughout all the provinces of Persia the right to attack Jews. And and as we're going to see, these were people who were called enemies of the Jews. These were people who hated the Jews. They now had a legal authority and excuse to do what their hearts already intended to do. These were people who hated the Jews. So now they're, they're given this empowerment. They've got this decree. And, and at the same time, through all these crazy circumstances, we get a second decree that gives the Jewish people the right to defend, theirself, defend themselves from these attacks. So we can't, the king just can't declare the Jews the victory. There has to be a battle because there's still opposition. And, and these people are, are so opposed to the Jews, they oppose their very existence. And so this uh, becomes a war, essentially. It is a fight for life. It is a fight to avoid death. The cost, then, would necessarily be the, the bloodshed of people who lose their lives. That is the cost of this victory. In the last chapter, uh, the Jews were filled with joy when the second decree went out. They were, they were elated that now they were given legal authority to defend themselves. Now, now it's interesting, they, they were filled with joy, but I'm thinking, they still had to fight the battle. Like My, my joy would be tempered because they still had to go through the actual war. They had to take out their swords. They had to risk their lives. It wasn't guaranteed by any means. But clearly the tides had turned. The momentum was now on the side of the Jewish people. Uh, We read that even the governors uh, and the, uh, the, the governors, the royal officials, Help the Jews for fear of Mordecai. So all of a sudden now the momentum shifted and now all of the help is with the Jewish people. And, and, and certainly what we read is uh, it was a convincing victory. But a lot of people died. There was a cost. There was bloodshed. How many of you, when you think of the 4th of July, uh, immediately think of the battlefields? Raise your hand. Ross. I don't know online if, if you think of that. I know what I think about, hot dogs. That's the first thing that comes to my mind when I think. And then I think of hamburgers. I might think of steak. I might think of fireworks. Um, 
sunshine, maybe, sometimes, 50% of the time, maybe, right? These, these are the things that we often think about. We think of 4th of July, we think of fun, we think of sun, we think of barbecue. But do we remember the cost? Do we remember that there was a lot of death associated with it? And there was an immense price paid for what we celebrate with the 4th of July. And it's the same thing here in this celebration. We're leading to the celebration of ultimately what God has done to keep his promises and saving the Jews. And, and next week, we're going to focus more on the celebration piece. But this is the lead up to it. This is the reason for it. This is examining and evaluating also the cost of it. And I think this is not the ultimate point, but a, an intermediary, uh, intermediate takeaway is to understand that victory is costly. And, and even as we think about our lives, things that are worth pursuing cost. If you want to have a good marriage, it costs. It requires sacrifice. If you want it to be a professional sports player, it costs, right? It requires sacrifice. If you want to be a, a good mom or a good dad, it costs. It requires sacrifice. You can't just declare yourself to be a good mom or dad, right? You have to actually invest in that. You have to lay down some things of your time, of your money, of your efforts for the sake of that victory that you're pursuing. And so we have to understand that in life, Whatever something's worth pursuing, whatever something's worth fighting for, it costs. And don't let cost be, uh, uh, be something that distracts you or something that, that hinders you from pursuing that which is actually good and valuable. If it costs something, maybe it's good. I'm not just talking about money, like going to buy something. Oh, it's really expensive. I'm not like telling you to go spend all your money at Nordstrom or whatever. I'm saying that that. Things that are good, things that are for the sake of other people, things that maybe God has placed on your heart, but maybe you've, maybe you've had fear. That I don't know if I could do that career shift because I won't make as much money or I need a bunch of training that's going to take a bunch of time or I don't know if I can speak up about this injustice that I'm seeing for fear of what that might do in terms of your relationships. I don't know if I can have a difficult conversation with someone in my family because I don't know what that will do to our relational dynamic. That's, these are the types of things that if we know it's right and good to do, there's going to be a cost and it's okay to go, well, you know what, that's just, that's just the reality of how things work. Now, our understanding of being victorious uh, doesn't end in only understanding that it's costly. In fact, I, I don't know that we have a huge problem with understanding that in order to get ahead in life that there's a cost to it. In fact, uh, I think oftentimes we prefer it that way because if we can pay the cost ourselves, then we can earn the victory. And that feels pretty good, right? If we know that we put in the work, we know that we've paid the price and we get the reward from that, then we can pat ourselves on the back and you know what, I earned the victory. So there's a second piece to understanding victory and that victory 
is grace. Ultimately, victory is grace. Firstly, let's look at the story of Esther. On the one hand, uh, Esther uh, is courageous, certainly. There's no argument that Esther is, is, is particularly courageous when she decides to go in front of the king, uh, unannounced, uninvited, which in her time would have been uh, risking her life if the king did not give her the golden scepter and say, you are invited into my presence, then she would be killed on the spot. And so she took a risk. She, she was courageous in doing that. And so you could look at the story and say her courage in going in front of the king and, and taking advantage uh, of the situation and, and getting to later on getting the king in a place and, and in a state of mind where he would call out Haman and his sin, you could say, well, this is a story about Esther and her bravery and how she saves the Jewish people. And, and not to take away from anything that Esther did, um, that is not the story. That's not the point. Because also, as you look at this same story, you recognize that there were a, a number of things completely outside of Esther's control that needed to happen for her to even have a chance at being courageous. Number one, the fact that the previous queen was, was banished, right? If the previous queen, Queen Vashti, wasn't banished, there would never be a Queen Esther and the, the, the outcome would have went a different way. Uh, in addition, uh, remember the king forgot to honor Mordecai when Mordecai discovered the, the, the plot that was uh, against the king's life. Almost always the king would have rewarded that for show, if, if, if anything, so that everyone would know that if you protect the king, you get paid, right? So the fact that he didn't do it was a, was a terrible mistake, but it actually turned out to help because later on, for some random reason, he has a sleepless night. He wakes up. He says, bring me the books, like read my autobiography of all my works, right? Kind of, kind of weird. But they do that, and they go back to that same time back when he forgot to honor Mordecai. He remembers, I don't think I honored him. Did we honor him? Like, no, king, we didn't. Let's go figure it out. Who's at the door walking up right about to knock, knock? It's Haman, right? About to ask for the life of Mordecai. What a coincidence. What a strange turn of events. All of that had to happen in order for the salvation of the Jews to happen. It's not a story about Esther's courage. It's a story about these strange set of circumstances, decisions that seem unrelated, that seem disconnected, that over time, all of a sudden seem to connect and seem to be orchestrated into a purpose for the deliverance of the Jewish people. When you read Esther in the context of the overall story of God, when God says uh, initially to Abram, to Abraham, basically, uh, I will make you a father of, of, of multitudes, and then through your nation you will be a blessing to all nations, and, and later on I will be your God and you will be my people. He's making a, a covenant, 
a promise that that's the way it's going to be. There is no condition on that. God is saying, I will do this. And so when you come to a story like this where there's a threat of, the, of his entire people being wiped out, the question is, will God step in? Will God do something about it? And the answer of Esther is yes, he does. And sometimes he doesn't do that supernaturally or miraculously. Sometimes he does that through strange coincidence and and connecting the dots between decisions and circumstances that in the moment you'd have no idea you have no clue right and and, and probably you can relate to this where where if you look back on your life and you see how you get to the moment where where the salvation comes or or the breakthrough comes and then you trace it back and you can trace it to to random things that at the time you did not see connected but now you do and you're like wow Maybe God was in it. Maybe there was some purpose in all these things that preceded, and that's the point of Esther. And because that's the point of Esther, victory is not rooted in Esther. It's rooted in God's purposes and God's working it out. It is grace. It is grace that we have the victory. Uh, And it's clear that this is the way that God has always worked. I want, to, I want to point you to a passage that I think is really helpful in understanding what's going on. If you go to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 9, it'll be up on the screen as well. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Listen, O Israel. Today you are about to cross the Jordan River to take over the land belonging to nations much greater and more powerful than you. They live in cities with walls that reach to the sky. The people are strong and tall, descendants of the famous Anakite giants. You've heard the saying, who can stand up to the Anakites? But recognize today that the Lord your God is the one who will cross over ahead of you like a devouring fire to destroy them. He will subdue them so that you will quickly conquer them and drive them out just as the Lord has promised. After the Lord your God has done this for you, don't say in your hearts, the Lord has given us this land because we are such good people. No, it is because of the wickedness of the other nations that he is pushing them out of the way. It is not because you are so good or have such integrity that you are about to occupy their land. The Lord your God will drive these nations out ahead of you only because of their wickedness and to fulfill the oath he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You must recognize that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land because you are good, for you are not. You are a stubborn people. God chooses to give victory, not because Israel is good or deserves it, but because of two things. One is judgment, and the second is promise. I'm going to talk about each one of these things. Judgment. Judgment uh, answers the question uh, that, that this, this chapter in particular begs. Why death? 
There's a lot of death in this chapter. There's a lot of death in the Bible, by the way. But why death? Uh, Death is about judgment. God determines what's right, what's wrong. Um, We celebrate, even when we celebrate Independence Day, uh, in, in some sense, we celebrate the death of British soldiers. Have you ever thought about it like that? Right? That was needed. It was, we needed to kill British soldiers in order to win the war and gain our independence. And we don't like to explain it that way, but that's the logical conclusion of it. But we have people who will complain about war and death, but won't complain about their freedom to do so. You see, freedom, the freedom that we enjoy is, is not free at all. It's costly. And when we look at death from a biblical perspective, death is the cost of fighting God. Sometimes people will say our problem is war and death. And if we just had less war and death, we'd be better off. But, better off. but I would like to submit to you that our problem is not death per se, it's hate. Hate is our problem. In, the, in this passage here, it says the Jews killed people who hated them. Verse, oh, let me go back to it. You can see that in verse 16 or in verse 5, right? They, they killed and annihilated, this is verse 5, their enemies and did as they pleased with those who hated them. Without hate, there would be no war. Without hate, there would be no judgment. God executes judgment on those who hate him. And so hate is the, is, the, is the problem. And God deals with hate through death and judgment. When we read back in Deuteronomy, God was sending Israel into these other nations to execute God's judgment on their wickedness. That was the reason, one of the reasons. The second reason he gives is grace. And he makes sure that his people understand it's not because they're good. It's not that God is fighting for the good people and fighting against the bad people. He's fighting against all bad people, but he chose a people to be his. He made a promise, not based on them, but based on God. And his promise was to be, his, be their God for them to be his people, and that ultimately, through this people, the whole world would be blessed. That he was going to make a way for the whole world to be his people. Now, how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, actually, before I get to how does that happen, um, the the principle there is grace. And and the, the ultimate plan of God was that he was sending a king his son, who would execute perfect justice, who would get rid of hate, who would get rid of injustice, who would get rid of death, but at the same time, make a way for people to become his. And so ultimately, the victory is Christ. The victory is Christ. So victory is costly, victory is grace, and victory is Christ. Here's the problem that needs to be resolved. We want victory over that which is wrong, uh, over that which is unjust. We want victory over that which is hateful. 
At the same time, we often are found in that exact place. If you look at America's history, right, we declared freedom for America while at the same time keeping people enslaved based on their color. There's There's a hypocrisy there, a deep, profound hypocrisy. We, as a nation, moved west across the United States before it was the United States saying manifest destiny, this is our right, while ignoring any right for those who were indigenous to this land. And it's very easy, to, it's, it's, it's comforting to think of ourselves as always on the right side, but when you look at history, it's just not the case. We're not always on the right side. And God is, what God was saying to Israel, you're not good, don't think You're being blessed because you're good. He can also say to us, don't think because we're blessed, we're good. We're not. We're stubborn in a lot of ways. We're hypocritical in a lot of ways. And and if we don't see ourselves as the oppressors, if we don't see ourselves in our own hate, then we don't see a need for grace. We just pat ourselves on the back for the victory that we earned. And that's who God opposes the proud. God gives grace to the humble. So we recognize, we we hear God saying, you're not good, you're stubborn. And yet God is coming to destroy those who are stubborn. You You see the tension? You see the predicament? And so that's why Jesus is needed. Jesus comes not only as king, he's going to set everything right, who's going to actually execute perfect justice, but he also comes as priest. He comes as the priest who's the one who's able to pay the ultimate cost of victory. That's why Jesus had to die. Jesus came as the ultimate warrior to to pay the ultimate price so that we could have the ultimate victory and that price was his death it was the blood that he shed on the cross all victory worthwhile is costly and God in his sovereign wisdom and his immense love for us said you can't pay the cost but I will pay it on your behalf and it's sufficient it's more than enough to cover all of our wickedness, to cover all of our hate, to cover all of our injustice, that we can agree with God and say, you know, we're not good, we're stubborn, we're hypocritical, but Lord, you are good, and you are so good, and you are so loving that you sent your son to die for us to pay the cost of our victory. Victory is grace, and victory is Christ in particular. And the good news is that we don't, we don't have to... Uh, Uh, get ourselves right first we're just called to trust in christ that when christ rose from the dead in victory that if we believe in him if we say yes lord your death was mine your death was for me that that i trust that you've made a way that i can go to my heavenly father and he listens to me he cares for me he he has an eternal place for me It's just belief and receiving it. Then you too, we too, rise with Jesus. We are victorious in Jesus. And and, and what I want to leave us with 
that, that leads us into celebration. But I want to reflect on the cost, on the payment that God made on our behalf that, that should cause us to be grateful. And, and we can move forward with a mindset that we are victorious. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the mistakes you made yesterday or this morning or last week or last month. It doesn't matter uh, the struggles you've had with, with in your family or in relationships. It doesn't matter the goals that you haven't been able to meet yourselves. It doesn't matter what your performance is. You are victorious in Christ because of what Jesus has done for you, period. And that's our destiny. It's celebration. It's victory. It's justice with him. And so I want to invite you to think, you know, it says at the end of it, they celebrate because of it. They celebrate, but they also don't forget the cost. And so I want to encourage us not to forget what Jesus has done for us, not to forget the cost of what Jesus has paid, the price that he paid, to free us from our hypocrisy, to free us from defeat. And let that be the hope that, that drives us. Let that be the motivation that, that would cause you to take a risk that maybe you would otherwise not take. That it would be the motivation that causes you to, to have that difficult conversation, to pursue that dream, to pay the cost of something because God has paid the cost ultimately on your behalf. So I'm going to pause here, and I know there's, there's questions that, that come up in relation to um, this passage in particular, and even the whole book of Esther. And what I'd like to do, uh, not today, but just uh, think of questions next week. So next week we're going to do a little Q&A after it'll be a short sermon, hopefully, uh, and then we'll do a Q&A of questions that either are uh, directly related to Esther, so questions about Esther in particular, or questions that, that Esther raises up, okay? So, so if you've been storing them up, this is a great time. Send them. Uh, you can put them in the chat. You can send them to info at rentonchurch.org, or if you already have my contact info, you can just email me as well. And, and then we'll, we'll take some time, maybe 10 minutes or so, after the sermon next week uh, to do that Q&A. Sound good? All right. I'm going to pray for us, and then, uh, and then we'll wrap up. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the victory that you won on our behalf. Lord, we, uh, I ask, Lord, that, that you would um, help us to, to understand uh, the ways in which we've fallen short, uh, the ways that... Uh, to understand that we can't earn victory, that we can't earn our salvation, Lord, but that you have earned it for us. And I pray that, that, we, would feel the, that we would feel that as good news, that we would experience the goodness of that, that we would experience uh, the joy that that brings, Lord, that we would have confidence that we are loved by you, that we have confidence that that we are empowered by you, that we have confidence that, that you have given us all purpose and meaning in life, Lord, that you have equipped us to be able to live out um, our identity in you, to be able to spread uh, 
the message of your good news and love to, to all those who are in our uh, sphere of influence. So I pray, Lord, that you would do that work in our hearts, and that you would continue to draw us uh, closer to you, uh, to make us more aware of how amazing your grace is and how great a victory that you've secured for us. So, Father, we thank you for your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read a, a short benediction from Ephesians uh, chapter 3. 